0: All right, if you have your, your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter. If you are newer to, to working around a Bible, if you start in the back, the last big book is Revelation. You get through four J books, the first, second, third, John, Jude, and then you're gonna be in the Peters. And there is a first and second Peter. We are First 1 Peter 1:13. 1, Here's how God's word reads. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, our text starts with this, with this word, therefore, and that should always grab our attention. As one great biblical scholar put it, when there is a therefore, you need to ask what it is there for. In 1 Peter, this is a transition of thought from some facts that Peter wants to lay out and the therefore is is a transition into application. So what's the context? What did we learn last week in the teaching that we're gonna look through for today's application? Peter's reminding Christ followers of their salvation. Based on God's mercy, not not on our efforts, but what he has given us, we are called into a relationship that's termed a living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This book has a future perspective of hope, that there's an inheritance in heaven waiting for us, and now listen to these words that Peter used to describe this. He says that it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. There's no one that can steal this from us. There's no, no uh, behavior that you can commit that would diminish this. Nothing can change the fact, if you're a Christ follower, of what God is storing in heaven for you. It is waiting for you, it is sure, and it will not be diminished. But in the meantime, on our time here on earth, as we wait for that incredible blessing that, that will be there for us, we're gonna go through some stuff. And, and one of the themes of First Peter is the trials that are happening here today on earth as we try to live for him. So why is that? Why why will there be stuff here? Because the earth and the world don't represent God's ways. There's gonna be a tension because it doesn't reflect what we want to be. It doesn't reflect what God wants us to be. So we're gonna be in the minority. We're gonna be the outcast, the outlier. Scripture even calls us an alien. This isn't our home, heaven is our home but today as we live here on earth until we get to be in God's presence for eternity, we're gonna be walking through this and we do this from a posture of being a living hope. Now the application that we're gonna see here out of this salvation message that Peter is is sharing with us, the application is two things, that as believers, we wanna live in a confident hope and that we have a growing holiness. Hope is a big word, and it's a reoccurring theme in 1 Peter. In fact, I found five uses in different forms of the Greek word, elpizo. 1 Peter 1.3 was the first of them, something we covered last week. It says, blessed be the God of our father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are a living hope. Now, in the Greek, that is a noun form, that is a state of who we are. In our text today, in verse 13, when it says we're to set our hope on Christ, it is a verb form. So, what does this tell us? It says that we are in the state of hope, we are God's living hope, and out of that state, we're to live. We're to act. We're to behave. We're supposed to live in hope because we are hope. But please don't confuse the word hope with the word wish. In our vernacular today, uh, in English, we we often use these as synonyms. What we what we wish for, what we want to have happen. I wish that this year the Seahawks would win the Super Bowl but my confidence in that is not good enough to buy a ticket for the Super Bowl or book plane tickets. It's not very likely. Now, we have lots of things we wish for. It's things that that we just hope they happen. But hope is a much more intense word biblically. Hope is something that there's confidence in that we know is going to happen. And because we know it's going to happen, we can have action leading up to it. It's not in in isolation. It's not just a, a whim of if this were to take place, then I would engage. There's a confidence in this. Biblical hope has a confident expectancy, a conviction of who God is, the promise of heaven that tomorrow will be better than today. That his gracious, sovereign hand is on our lives so that as we build and live our life, we know what is going to happen in the future. We can have a confidence in that. Our hope in the future should be a little bit like a strong-willed child. You ever been around or had a strong-willed child, that determination, that fixation, that you can't move me no matter what? It's a little easier if you're not on the outside of a strong-willed child. I heard a story once of a family that had a strong-willed child and the family was getting ready to to leave and asked the child to to put their shoes on. And the child said, no. So the request went to a plead. Would you please put your shoes on? We're getting ready to go, you're gonna make us late. And the child said, "Mm, no. So the request to the plead now went to a little more intense. Would you put your shoes on? And child said, no, not gonna do it. So the parent set the child down in a chair and said, okay, then you're going to sit here until you put your shoes on. The child looked at the parent and said, that's fine. You can't make me. And if I sit here until I die, I win. A strong-willed child has just that—that that gut-wrenching um, uh, determination that nothing is going to move me. That's the way our hope should be. Our hope should be so determined that it doesn't matter what comes at us in life, we we know what's going to happen. We have such trust in God that that. Oh, we know it's not gonna wane. We know God's goodness is, is going to come. And, and so we're so focused and fixated on that that we can be Teflon and allow the, the troubles of the world and the things that come around us to, to just bounce off. Romans 12:12 12, 12 talks about this and gives us encouragement, saying that we are to rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and to be constant in in prayer. Patient in tribulation. Doesn't matter what's going on. I'm going to be steadfast. Paul shows his hope in a myriad of circumstances that he got put into. And we see this attitude in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we were uh, despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What are the kinds of things that, that Paul had to deal with? Shipwreck, physical beatings and persecution. He, he built a church, shared Christ, built a church up, and then they went wayward and were just sinning, doing whatever they wanted. Do you think that was a burden? Do you think that that would have been hard? And then he had physical infliction too. Scripture says he had a thorn in the flesh. We think it was like a debilitating physical condition. Maybe it was a loss of eyesight all those things and he is set on his hope being in God. I love reading these stories of hope. I love these stories of faith and seeing these big spiritual giants as as they have all these huge events in life happen and it just doesn't even seem like they wane on their faith, doesn't even wane on their hope. But you know, in my life, as I reflect, I do, Wayne, it seems like big, hard stuff happens and I start to question and I start to wonder and I wonder if God's goodness is still in it. When you lose a loved one way too early or a relationship painfully ends and it leaves you confused and angry or maybe there's a financial hole in life that just seems insurmountable or maybe a medical condition just seems to take over your life and you don't see a way out. You don't see how anything is going to get better. That ever happened to you? Ever lost hope? I have. I've always been active, always been playing sports and doing things and played sports through college and after continued to do the softball and open gym basketball, all that kind of stuff. But the, the real passion that I loved to do was to golf and golfed on a, a regular basis. And then one day I hurt my back. I didn't know that I hurt my back. I thought I'd pulled my hamstring. Over a course of a few months, I was having pain in my leg and, and I went and was playing in this golf tournament and actually had wrapped up my, my leg because the pain would just come right in the back of, of my right hamstring. And after a swing, I just went to the ground and I could barely get myself back to, to the clubhouse. Got an appointment with um, my, my doc, which was a friend of mine, and said, I, I, I gave him all my symptoms and I said, I pulled my hamstring He said, Matt, you're gonna wish you pulled your hamstring because you have a bulging disc. And this is pain that's coming down your back from that. So we put a whole treatment plan together involving PT and anti-inflammatories and um, and steroids um, and and the like. And um, over the next three or four weeks, I didn't get better, I got worse. The pain went from my hamstring all the way down to my feet. I couldn't sleep. I'd sleep two or three hours and the pain would be so, so intense. I'd get up and I'd walk the house for an hour, hoping to get it to flare down enough to get another hour or two of sleep. And then I'd go into the office and I was foggy minded and depressed and just, just struggling to even think straight. And in that time of just over a four, five, six week period, I just wondered if this was ever going to get better. Am I ever going to be able to live life again? Am I ever going to think without being groggy? Am I ever going to be able to sleep through a night or ride in a car for more than a couple hours? At at the height of it, there there was one time we were were driving to see, see family and we got stopped at a little construction spot. And... My leg was hurting bad enough. I got out and I did my exercises on the highway while waiting in, in lines of the cars. you do just anything to try to get relief. I'd always pictured myself as that, that 80-year-old guy hanging out with, with his buddies at the golf course. And, and that was in jeopardy. Life was in jeopardy and all those things that I had pictured. And I walked into the scenario knowing my Bible, walking with God. And over the amount of weeks, the circumstance, the emotion, just set in in a way that you just lose hope. Well, fast forward maybe 10, 8 or 10 more weeks, and it did get better. And the, the, I was able to start functioning again and start living life and, and, and continue to with little flare-ups here or there. But I'm amazed how quick I can go from having hope and a circumstance happens and it's gone. Now, this passage is telling us to, to confidently live in this. We're supposed to have this such steadfast, confident hope that nothing makes us wane, that we're gonna build our life and our activities but then why is it so easy to lose hope so quick? Let's look at some of these verses around because what I think is, is Peter is gonna give us some clues on how we can build this kind of hope. Some tools which we can put into our life to be better prepared when life does hit. Verse 13 reads this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These two phrases that start out verse 13, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. They're subjective phrases. These are used to, used to describe, they're really used to say, these are tools that are going to help you in your hope. Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Now, preparing our minds or the connection of our intellect, our thoughts, and our minds with, with our, our heart, hope, and, and what we believe and act out of, the, the thought of these connecting shouldn't be odd. They connect all over in scripture. Look at Mark twelve thirty, when God teaches us how to worship. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He's saying everything that we are, our intellect, our personality, our body, our emotion, all of this is to be surrendered to God. All of this should be a tool for worship. All of this should be, this should be a package deal in how we follow him. Romans 12 talks about the importance of our mind and building the right perspective for our spirituality. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect. It's saying develop your mind for God, and then you're gonna be clearer in how you evaluate things. You develop your mind for God, you prepare it. You're gonna understand right from wrong, godly from ungodly, worldly from eternal. There's this this phrase, prepare your minds for action. It's actually a really interesting one in the Greek. Listen to this. Literally, the Greek says, gird up the loins of your mind. Anybody know what that means? Gird up the loins of your mind? I mean, it's like, how would I even know that? In, um, in Bible times and even current in Middle East wear, um, men would often wear a big outer shirt. It'd probably be closer to a, a robe for us. And it would be this big shirt that would hang all the way down to his feet. And that was one of the layers of his clothes. Now imagine to, if you were going to work and you wore this shirt that went all the way to your clothes and you had a physical job. As you were taking steps, the shirt would get in the way. It'd be hard to move quickly. Girding up your loins was, it was grabbing that shirt and it was pulling it up so it would get away from your feet so that you could move. And then you used your belt to secure it and keep it up. It's saying, get your dress ready for activity. Get ready to be able to move, get ready to to be able to work. And what Peter is saying here is, is you need to prepare your minds and get it ready for action. So how do we do that? We get to know him through his word. We, we learn who God is. We learn what salvation is. We, we, we learn scripture in a way that we know God, not, not from a mythical um, perception of who God is, but from the truth of his word. It's saying we should study, learn, read, reflect, memorize God's word so that our minds are prepared for action. So we're ready to live out of this truth. But beyond preparing our minds for action, Peter also says for us to have sober minds, Now, what's the opposite of sober? I know it's church, but you can say it. What's the opposite of sober? Drunk, Drunk. it's being drunk. Now picture a time you've been around somebody that had too much to drink. I've watched people that were drunk be overly angry. I've watched them be sad. I've watched them be silly, but I've never watched a drunk person be smart. (laughs) You ever seen somebody that drank too much and you said, man, I I need to take some notes because what they're saying is really good right now. As the alcohol changes their perceptions and their realities, they, they, they become more emotional, but they lose all wisdom. No good ideas come out of drinking. Now, Peter's using this picture because he knows people will have seen it. They'll seen the effects of alcohol and that it skews thought and it skews behavior. But he's now he's putting it into our minds and said, don't let your minds be intoxicated. You know what intoxication looks like with, with alcohol? You know when it takes an end, the physical toll that takes, he says, Be careful not to let your minds get drunk. Your minds get intoxicated. Theologian Wayne Gruden puts it this way. Don't let your mind wander into what other kind of mental intoxication or addiction which inhibits spiritual alertness or any laziness of mind which lulls Christians into sin through carelessness. It's getting our minds absorbed or or overly into things that we either lose spiritual sensitivity, we lose spiritual awareness, we lose spiritual truth in a way that we're going to give into things that we shouldn't. We can find ourselves influenced by multiple things when we talk about the intoxication of our mind. We can lose this alertness. We can lose this sensitivity. We can lose it through fill in our minds with immoral thoughts, immoral pictures, immoral things that start to flood. And they can be exciting. They can, they can, they can be give this initial flare of, of fun. It can even, we can use them in an attempt to, to fill something of, of one of our perceived needs. But what does this do? It takes our eyes off of the glory of God and it puts it on something that's, shallow and incomplete and less than. And it's so easy to allow that to turn from a moment of intoxication to an addiction. If that's you, I would encourage you to have somebody come alongside to help you. These are hard to overcome by yourself, but I've had many friends who've worked on retraining their minds They've done the work, and over a time, what once seemed like a consuming addiction, now they had freedom from it. But in almost every case that I know, it involved the help of someone. You know, we even have a program here that helps guys grow through the struggles of this. But even more subtle than just the immoral stuff that when we look at, we know it's wrong. There are amoral or things that, it's not like it's moral or immoral, it just is kind of things in life that can intoxicate us. This, these items that are neutral, but when we get consumed by them, it just takes up so much mental space. They can become obsessions. It could be work, it could be a hobby, it could be politics. Could even be media or social media today, where it becomes a something we have to consume, something we're drawn to mindlessly, something that, that we're pulling truth from and we're seeing life through. And the more we the more room in our mind that we allow for that, the more we're pushing out God's truth. I had a friend that in his retirement he um, started watching more and more of cable news. And it, it fit with some of his, his views and, and thoughts. And so he, he wasn't just watching a, like an evening show to catch up. He was watching quite a bit of it. And, and I, I, he, he came to me and he said, you know what, I need to give this up. And I said, "Well, well, why? He said, I'm watching so much that I'm constantly angry. I'm constantly fr- from a point of, of this fatalistic point of how bad the world is and, and how wrong this person is or, or this person is, and it just makes me boil. And so he just, he just broke from that. And not that he didn't catch any media, but he, he, he controlled and had discipline on how much intake he was gonna have so that it just didn't make him constantly angry. Had a, another friend, um, we got really close. We were fellow kook fans and and talked about lots of stuff and sports. But one of the topics we liked to talk about was in investments and and this guy was smart, way smarter than I was. He was a trained accountant, but um, he would often get get used to look at business plans to help business people build a good business and um, uh, one day we were talking about stocks that we were investing in. And I said, well, how are you doing? And he said, he goes, Matt, I've had a really good couple months. Um, and, and this guy had a great perspective on money. He was, he was generous. He wasn't materialistic. Um, he didn't flaunt in anything. He just had a knack of making money. And, um, and he said, I've made enough in the last couple months. I could buy a really nice car just, just from my gains. And I was like, hey, wow, way to go. That's really good. Fast forward a few months and I circled back and I said, hey, what are you investing in? You know, what do you like right now? He said, you know what? I gave it up. He said, I was doing so much of this. This is what my DVR was filled with. He said, I was doing so much of this. This is what I was thinking about when I woke up and when I went to bed. And I was thinking about it too much. So I just decided I'm done. I, I'm just not even going to do that because right now it just feels like gambling to me. And he was having success. It's not just immoral stuff that can intoxicate our mind. It can be amoral things that we get consumed by and we need to take a, a break from. So Peter tells us to have a confident hope, one that is... is 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 persevering and ready for action. He tells us to prepare our minds um, to to be doing the things to to know him well. And lastly, he tells us to, to keep a sober mind. But let's look at this very last verse, this last section of scripture, starting at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We all have, have had, have present and will have habits and behaviors and motivations that are based more off of our selfishness, more based on our desires, more based on what we want than what God wants. That's what Peter is calling here when he says these, these former ignorant passions, these former ignorant ways. We're gonna have things that from birth, I want to do it this way without regards of God's way. And those aren't gonna completely end with us in, until heaven. And what is this called? Sin. Sin. It's our sin. It's our, it's our junk that that is in us and that we want and we want to work out. Now, what Peter is saying is he's saying, you had this whole way of life. You need to choose God's. You need to start mirroring God's holiness. God's holiness, this is a big word and one of the most important traits of God. It means it's kind of this combination of, of power and goodness and perfection. It's God always doing the right thing, always with the right moment, the, the right motive, always at the right time or the right moment. Now, you may have some in your, someone in your family that always thinks they're right. God always is right. Timing, motive, thought. It's always accurate. It's always good. It's always right. Here's some other verses in scripture talking about God's holiness. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Isaiah 6, 3. This is in a context of worship. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We use those words a lot in um, this this three times saying, holy, holy, holy. Because God is different. Because God is perfect. Because God is good. We worship him and, and use that a lot in our worship songs. Revelation 15, four, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Holiness is an awesome trait of God. He's always good, he's always perfect, he's always right and completely without sin. And we can trust and bank in that is who God is. But this passage says for us to be obedient children and mirror that. We're to be holy because he is holy. When I was mm, probably 16, 17, I read a a book on holiness with my youth pastor. It was called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Good book, it kind of raises the standard of of God's holiness and, and speaks to this biblical holiness. And it challenges you to be like God in this way. So you know what I did? I tried harder. I tried to be like God harder. I tried to be less sinful. And I tried to do it more God's way. How do you think that turned out? Not great. You know, we can try harder and it's gonna help a a little bit but it's not just our efforts. It is so hard to overcome what we have been and what's in us and the motivations. And and this says that we're to be like him in perfection. Now for somebody who leans towards perfectionism, that's hard. Let me give you a thought and a context out of this that may help us in our holiness. God knows us so well. He knows this side of heaven, we are not gonna be perfect like him. But what this call is, is to be growing towards that, to be moving that direction, letting go more and more of these old passions and old ways and mirroring him in better and better ways. But I wonder if the context of this passage from this salvation that we have, that's not on us. It's his mercy and his work on the cross that we have this relationship. And from that, that this living hope that we have, that, that no one can take and no one can steal. And from that, we live in this expectant, confident hope of what is coming. And and in this, we're renewing our mind. We're working on it. We're trying to get him to know him better. We're trying to know his truth better. And we're trying to hold off and be disciplined with this intoxicating stuff that can skew us away from that and distract us. I wonder in the context of that and that whole picture is when we need to live out our holiness. Now, let me say this a little differently. I don't know if you have kids or what age your kids are, but there's this sweet age from, I don't know, upper preschool to maybe the middle of grade school where your kids just look up to you. And they just go, I wanna be just like that. It's like you can do no wrong. Now, if your kids are in that age, I don't wanna pop the bubble, but that changes. <laughs> and then they get into high school and they don't think you can know anything. and but then you kind of can come out of that and they kind of they, they think you, you know something again, but that happens in well into the 20s. But th- there's this sweet spot age where these kids just idolize you and they look up to you and they wanna be just like you. My picture of that is a social media picture that went around a few years ago. And it was a dad mowing the lawn and in, in the middle of his mowing and, and pushing this mower, you looked behind him and here was his little son with a play lawn mower pushing behind, wanting to do it just like dad. Can you picture that? Can you picture that, that, that kid that so wants to be like his parent that they're gonna do anything and they're gonna mirror that and they're gonna, they're gonna replicate that as much as they can. I wonder if that's the picture of our holiness that doesn't drive our motivation and help us to be more like our father, to be obedient children. Not to have this long to-do list of all the things we're supposed to do and all the things we're supposed to avoid. Now, a structured perfectionist like that, tell me what to do, but all that's in my strength and I can only go so far. I think it's in a picture where we gaze into the eyes of our father, where we know him and his traits so well and in the safety of this relationship, in this confident hope, in this renewing of our mind that we say, I want to be just like you, dad. I I, I want my ways to be just like your ways. I want my thoughts to be like your thoughts. I want to learn to love like you love. I want to learn to sacrifice like you sacrifice. I want to learn to be generous like you're generous. I want to learn to be gracious like you're gracious. I want to learn to be holy like you're holy. And it's in the safety of that relationship where we just gaze at our Father and say, help me to be more like you. I wonder that's the context that we really can grow to be more holy. Let me share a couple potential applications for you today. Maybe you're catching this and saying, Matt, this all sounds really good, but I don't know this God that you're talking about. I I want that. I want this assurance of what is coming, but I don't think I have that. After our time of uh, um, finishing, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to have some people in this back corner. Um, They would love to be able to talk with you about that. Because if you're sensing God's calling you today, they would love to be able to help you with that. Maybe the part that is sticking in your mind right now is that you need to train your mind. You're around faith. You've given your life to the Lord, but you don't really know your Bible. You don't really know this God that we talk about every week. Well, we've got some helps for you. Do you know that we make a, a, a card, it's a little bookmark kind of size that helps us walk through a Bible reading program. And every month, there's different books that as Ecclesia, as the family, we want to read together. We got a stack of those at the the Connect table. If you don't have a plan just to to read through your Bible, that would be a great start. But maybe you're looking for more than that. We have School of Bible that will be starting again this fall that is training, honestly, close to Bible college level training. We've got community groups that walk through scripture and do life together. But one of the best ways may be to enter into discipleship. Discipleship is where we one-on-one put a mentor with somebody who wants to just learn more about God. And together you're studying scripture and talking about God's ways. And and they're they're talking about their failures as well to help you understand how, how to do life. Something I learned this week within our discipleship because what do we have probably 75 people that are connected right now in discipleship relationships is that we need more females to be, dis, to be mentors. That we have women that are waiting and want to be mentored but don't have somebody to mentor them right now. If that interests you, stop by the, the connect table. We'd love to be able to help, help you with that. A third potential application. Maybe the conviction for you is that there's something that is intoxicating in your life and in your mind. Here's a challenge. Take a 40-day break. Take 40 days and delete the app. Take 40 days and turn off the, the TV. Take 40 days and avoid and say, that won't be in my life for the next 40 40 days. And on the 41st day, stop and reflect and see if things are a little bit different. If your mind is a little bit clearer or maybe there's a point of intoxication where you just need to reach out to somebody and and say, hey, I'm struggling with X. I need some help. Maybe you... um, are are listening today and say, I'm getting this. I'm living in hope. I'm I'm training my mind. Um, I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm trying to avoid those things that that could intoxicate my mind. Here's my challenge for you. Give it away. You're at a point in your faith that you can help somebody else, whether that's as a mentor, whether that's helping in a classroom, whether that's helping in a community, give it away. Even just find a friend and start meeting with them and share what you're learning.